0: a mystery guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. Uh, No, I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture. This is John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? yippee ki mother... Welcome to around the world in 80s movies my name is vince leo i am the author of the film review website quipster.net i've been doing film reviews since 1996 you can read all of my written work at my website quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net while you're there i do encourage you to check out the link that goes to my other podcast that i do it's very similar to this one although it covers mostly Films of the 1990s, as well as movies that came out later that were influenced by the 90s, as well as the 1980s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. Find the link at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the first of a new three-part series. Actually, all three films I'm going to be doing are, are pretty big hit action films of the 1980s. We're gonna start off with Die Hard from 1988, one of the most requested uh, reviews for films of the 1980s that I've had, finally getting to it now that I'm over 200 episodes in. Die Hard is a, an, an action film, obviously. It is an R-rated film. It does contain violence, nudity, language. It does have a scene of drug use. The main star is Bruce Willis, with supporting roles going to Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, Reginald Vell Johnson, Paul Gleason, Alexander Gudenoff, William Atherton, and Hart Bachner. The director of Die Hard is John McTiernan, the screenplay credited to Jeb Stewart, and Stephen E. D'Souza. Now, the origin of Die Hard, you can go back a little bit to the 1960s, actually. Back in 1968... A Roderick Thorpe novel that was published back in 1966 was made into a feature film called The Detective. The Detective was adapted to the screen by the studio 20th Century Fox, and that film version starred Frank Sinatra. He played this middle-aged ex-cop named Joe Leland, and the movie actually performed pretty well at the box office, enough for Fox to acquire the rights for any follow-up novels to be able to be adapted into feature films. Now, Thorpe, the author of the original book, The Detective, he struggled with sequel ideas until 1974, and that's when he viewed the skyscraper disaster film known as The Towering Inferno. And after he viewed that movie, that same night, Thorpe had a dream. And in this dream, there was a man who was trapped in a building very similar to the... uh, To the fire in the building and towering inferno but instead of a fire he was being chased by men toting guns thorpe surmised that that premise that basic premise could work very well as the main plot of the next joe leland novel which he set to work on entitling it nothing lasts forever thorpe's completed manuscript was then optioned immediately by fox before it was even published However, a studio reader flagged the uh, Nothing Lasts Forever manuscript as not recommended to make into a film. Thorpe's story contained elements that the reader felt was not conducive to being a commercially appealing film. Leland, the detective in the story, now a troubled divorcee in his 60s, he reunites with his somewhat estranged executive daughter named Stephanie Gennaro at the corporate office Christmas party held in this 40-story Los Angeles high-rise owned by the Klaxon Oil Corporation, her employer. Stephanie is a cokehead. She's embroiled in a major arms sale to the Chilean Junta. Leland ends up getting trapped in the building. He's chased by a band of terrorists looking to uh, exact revenge on the Klaxon executives. Killings that occur in the novel were excessively gruesome. And the story finally ends with Stephanie falling from the building along with its main villain, Anton Gruber. In Thorpe's original manuscript, it goes even further. Leland also dies at the end, at the last minute, killed by gunfire from one of the uh, the terrorists, still alive at the end. Due to the adaptation reticence on the part of Fox, Thorpe decided before publication he would revise his novel that would soon be published. He determined to soften the violence, He also allows Leland to survive at the end, or at least makes it more ambiguous as to whether he will survive, when the final bad guy wounds him. And then the bad guy gets killed by Al Powell, this cop who's on the ground that Leland is in contact with. Even with the changes, even with the softening up of the Thorpe novel, Fox still was reticent. Primarily, it was because there was too much time that had elapsed, to try to make a sequel to The Detective. A decade later, Frank Sinatra, by the late 1970s, was a fading box office presence. So they decided they weren't really going to go forward with it. Later on in 1983, there was another script reader that took a crack at the completed novel, but they still found it a little bit too distasteful and exploitative for early 1980s audiences. Going forward about three more years, in 1986, Things started to change. Associate producer Lloyd Levin, he was scouring dormant Fox properties. He was looking for any kind of potential project to make into a feature film, and he discovered Thorpe's novel, and he thought it actually had some intriguing possibilities. Levin showed Nothing Lasts Forever to independent producer Lawrence Gordon, and Gordon just took one look at the cover. It depicted a burning skyscraper, and there was a helicopter surrounding it, and he told Levin, I don't even need to read this. Buy it enter screenwriter jeb stewart jeb stewart was uh, a screenwriter stuck in this four picture deal with disney it wasn't really paying him enough to support his pregnant wife he also had a a young child as well he was busy seeking outside work to try to make ends meet he did have something promising going on he had a potential career-making deal for a vehicle starring robert Duvall, but that ended up going bust at columbia pictures so, Stewart's agent, Jeremy Zimmer, he contacted producers at Fox as well as Paramount for any new opportunities that they might have. Paramount made them an offer that they accepted, but also Fox's Lloyd Levin. He offered nothing lasts forever. Stewart needed the money. He immediately accepted both deals at Fox and Paramount without even fully knowing what they were about. But it ended up that Stewart had issues with the Paramount producers on their project, so he decided to concentrate strictly on adapting Nothing Lasts Forever. After reading Thorpe's novel, Stewart did feel a bit pessimistic about the prospects. Even with Levin's assurances that he could change the plot and characters and story as he pleased, Thorpe's story seemed very heavy, very depressing, and something that uh, Stewart personally would never want to see as a movie. He only really liked the core idea of a good guy taking down bad guys in a building. Stewart also had no real action movie experience. He knew the thriller genre, though. He did know that in a thriller, you wanted to build audience identification with the protagonist before the plot starts to kick in. But being that this is an action movie, he struggled to find a resonant hook that would draw in audiences from the start, from within Thorpe's novel. Stewart eventually did have an epiphany on how he was going to proceed with the story. He had a heated argument with his wife. Stewart stormed out of his Pasadena home, he he got in his car, he headed toward his Burbank studio office and he was dodging LA traffic. And that's when he had a head-on collision with this cardboard refrigerator box that had fallen off of a steak bed truck that was hauling appliances. It was laying in his lane And he was going too fast to actually avoid it. He ran head-on into it. The box, luckily, was empty. But if it had not been, that collision at 65 miles an hour probably would have been fatal. Stewart pulled over immediately to the side of the road. He was very shaken by this experience, this potentially fatal experience. And the only thought he really had in his mind was that his wife's last memory of him would have been him leaving in anger. Stewart's new story, Hook he felt, should involve a younger man, not somebody in his 60s, but somebody like him in his 30s, a 30-something married cop. He would be returning to his estranged wife across the United States. He wanted to get her back before he lost her for good. This New York cop would have refused to follow his wife when she took a career offer to work in Los Angeles. Like so many of Stewart's friends going through a divorce, the wife would go back to her maiden name. He Stewart used Gennaro, the name of Leland's daughter, from the novel. The protagonist would travel cross-country to tell his wife, his estranged wife, that she was right all along and he wanted her back. But before he could make those amends, terrorists storm the building where she works, trapping everybody inside, including himself. Motivated by love and duty, the detective springs to action to thwart the terrorists and save the day. Stewart completed 35 to 40 pages of the script that day. Ironically, he did all of that without still having apologized to his wife. Now, Stewart realized that his plot would necessitate knowing the inner workings of a building, something he had no idea about. But serendipitously, 20th Century Fox happened to be erecting a new building in nearby Fox Plaza. Fox originally wanted Maybe this would be shot in Houston because they had many empty, recently built skyscrapers there, but this new skyscraper seemed to be something that would work even better because that would not only save time, it would save money, but they could also shoot on floors that were still under construction and they would not disturb the people, the residents that were already in the building too much. The superintendent for the building at Fox Plaza gave Stewart an in depth tour, which he could use to begin concocting plot elements and locales for his story. Now, because Thorpe's novel internalizes Leland's motivations in the book, Stewart found that he had to flesh out supporting characters so that the protagonist would vocalize expository information, such as on a CB radio, especially to Al Powell, the cop on the outside. Stewart happened to be a major John Wayne fan, so he added a lot of Western tropes to give it flavor because he was not really an action movie aficionado. Lawrence Gordon, the producer, found that the action in the first script from uh, Jeb Stewart was way too unrelenting. He said that he needed what's called ledges, which are these small respites to allow the audience to catch their breath between action sequences gordon also requested that they change the name of the protagonist from joe leland to something else because he wanted to break ties with the detective he didn't want to confuse audiences who were still familiar with the detective that this was somehow a sequel with the same character although he was much younger even though it was set later so stewart decided to change the name of the protagonist because he was a big westerns fan he decided to change joe leland to john ford after the famous director but even then, Gordon felt that John Ford was too famous a name and that using it would be just a complete distraction to audiences. So not knowing what to do, Stewart just decided to try to thumb through a phone book and see what other names might he could find until something kind of clicked. And he found a surname that did resonate with him, McLean, a good, strong Scottish name. So after two months, Stewart completed the script with the ledges and with his new protagonist, John McClane. After all of this, Stewart decided he would go on a little family vacation. After he returned, he found that his answering machine was replete with all kinds of ecstatic responses from Fox execs to his script. Fox was eager to ride the wave of action movie blockbusters that was going on at the time, and so they fast-tracked the picture, into pre-production. They brought on action movie producer Joel Silver, specifically Lawrence Gordon's former protege, and, and Silver immediately told Stewart, no offense, he was fired. Even though he loved the script, he wanted somebody he knew that he could trust that could also work very fast to get this movie onto the screen by the summer. Gordon did manage to stave off Silver from firing Stewart outright, at least initially, so that Stewart could continue until a new screenwriter was hired. So working with Jeff Stewart, Silver initially wanted immediately a title change. He wanted to break even more ties to the novel, and he had a title already in mind called Die Hard, which was the name of another script that was in development at the time by Shane Black. Silver asked for the title rights from Black because Silver really liked that title, and it was still unknown whether that script idea that Shane Black had would ever be made into a feature film. It actually would be, and coincidentally, it would star Bruce Willis as well, and it would be called The Last Boy Scout and came out in 1991. The original author of the book, Roderick Thorpe, when he heard about the the title change to Die Hard, he felt it was kind of stupid. He felt that it would remind everybody of the car battery brand instead. Now, Silver also wanted to change the ending. He wanted an ending where the top of the building would blow up because he argued that people pay money to see explosions he they wanted to see the building blow up it had to be in the movie otherwise they would have a hard time really selling this as a premise and stewart obliged to whatever silver demanded as far as the director for die hard they decided that they their top choice would be paul verhoven he would be the cho- top choice to direct coming just off of robocop he showed his action movie credibility but Verhoeven, unfortunately, passed, as did several others on this list. The list did include John McTiernan, who had also passed on this film. He had directed Predator for both Gordon and Silver, so he was heavily sought, but he turned it down, actually several times. He was very fatigued from the Mexican jungle shoot of Predator. He was very much turned off by the script, especially the ultra-cool nature of John McClane. He thought he was more of a James Bond type. He really really abhorred the terrorist plot he thought that audiences would not relate to a hero that didn't have any discernible flaws but he also felt that audiences would find the terrorism topic very depressing so silver and gordon continued though to press mctiernan and they wanted to get this movie made they had a shorthand with mctiernan already mctiernan eventually consented to listen on the condition that the terrorists could become thieves instead because he felt that heist's were fun. Terrorism was not fun. If they could be trying to pull off a heist, he would be much more interested. He also thought that McLean, John McClane, should not be this overly aggressive dirty hairy archetype. He should be just an average guy, somebody that people could relate to. The villain could be the James Bond type, the sophisticated, educated elitist. And they should also add a lot more humor. The script, even though it was trying to be a little more fun than the book, was still a little too heavy. Silver then brought in screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza to take over the scripting chores from Jeb Stewart. D'Souza had worked for Gordon on the TV show Renegades as well as for Joel Silver on his movies 48 Hours and Commando. He had a big shorthand with them. He was known to work very fast. He came from the world of television, fast deadlines. He could fix problems as they arose. He was the perfect person to bring in to uh, write on the fly. Now, in Changing the Terrorist's To Thieves, Klaxon, the oil company, was changed instead to a Japanese company. And that was because Japanese buying buildings, that was much more topical. They were buying a lot of Los Angeles buildings and businesses at the time. The Japanese were also becoming very much high rollers in Hollywood. So they didn't want to demonize the Japanese by making them kind of bad guys. They would be more businessmen and good guys in this film. And that was primarily because the people working on this film knew that because Japanese were taking up a lot of stake in Hollywood, they probably would work for them in some capacity in the future. They didn't want the Japanese jaded against them. The bad guys in this film, the so-called terrorists, would remain Germans. Germans were still more traditional to villainize in the 1980s. The company name changed from Klaxon to Nakatomi, they got that name after reading a list of aristocratic Japanese clan names, Takagi, who happens to be Nakatomi's president, that came from reading a list of Japanese admirals, McTiernan decided to expand certain characters in the film uh, early on. The limo driver that takes McClane from the airport to the Nakatomi building, initially called William in Jeb Stewart's script, that would be changed by Silver to Argyle, He was beefed up because in order to establish McLean very early on as an average guy, he needed to be shown as being very uncomfortable in the limo. The life of the rich and the famous, the California lifestyle, it was just all kind of a little too much for a simple New York City cop to absorb. McTiernan also wanted a lot of the dialogue. He felt it was way too talky to be reduced as much as possible by D'Souza because he preferred imagery to tell the story, McTiernan had this idea in mind that Die Hard seemed a lot like Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream in a certain way. Even though it, it, it wasn't in plot or story or characters, it had a similar vibe where everybody kind of pretends to be something else for this crazy evening. And then all's well that ends well once it all resolves. Now, when the choice came to who would play John McClane, well, they were in a little bit of a bind. Frank Sinatra happened to have, by contract, first look rights for any sequel to The Detective. Even though the name had changed, even though the character basically was not anywhere near the same, and the story was trying deliberately not to tie into The Detective, Frank Sinatra still was contractually obligated to be given the first look But luckily for the producers, they were relieved that he passed. He claimed that he was too old and too rich to need to do an action movie anymore. Although Stewart's script did call for a younger actor, the producers still tried for older. Clint Eastwood was an early choice as well. Eastwood happened to decline because he really didn't understand a lot of the humor that was being put into the film. Paul Newman was also given a look, another older actor. He wanted to do no more films where he carried a gun, though. Things started to open up to more traditional stars. They thought about Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Harrison Ford. They all were not interested. Silver then determined that he should target Richard Gere. He thought that Richard Gere would be a great choice to play John McClane, but... Gear happened to be at that time exploring Buddhism and playing a hard-boiled cop in this explosive thriller was just not speaking to him. So even though he was offered $4 million for the part, he declined. Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, James Caan were among the uh, actors that were also declining. And it became very pressing. Time was ticking. They needed to get a star pronto to get the film underway and on schedule. They even sought hot TV action stars like Don Johnson from Miami Vice and Richard Dean Anderson from MacGyver, and they also would not commit to the film. Bruce Willis was eventually floated as a possibility. Joel Silver happened to be on an airplane flight. He was talking shop with Willis's talent agent, Arnold Rifkin. Although Willis was hot from moonlighting and certainly had the name recognition from that, as well as a popular series of Seagram's Wine Cooler commercials. He also had a hit rock and blues album called The Return of Bruno. Silver, though, was skeptical because Bruce Willis was known primarily at that time as a comedic actor. He was not some big action star. He also had kind of a public persona image problem. He had a reputation as being kind of an arrogant, egotistical bad boy party animal. It wouldn't really translate to being kind of the good guy, the average guy in this film. Yet, there was still a star quality that was undeniable there, so Silver was open to the possibility. He decided to meet with Bruce Willis, had him come in for a reading with McTiernan, and impressed, and also being under a deadline schedule, they decided that they were going to secure Willis immediately. He was good enough. Now, Willis was committed to doing moonlighting at the time, and he probably was going to pass, but a break did occur for him. Moonlighting co-star Sybil Shepherd became pregnant. And so she would probably be showing the pregnancy. So the show basically would go into hiatus for several more weeks. And that would make Bruce Willis available for pre-production. Rifkin, he knew that Fox was desperate. He decided to go bold. He requested $5 million if Fox wanted to sign Willis. Now, Willis was initially very apprehensive because this was a high number. This would place him among the most elite of action stars But Rifkin told Willis, hold firm. A big payday shifted the blame toward the producers rather than Willis if the film failed. So that was kind of a win-win. Fox ended up, even though they didn't want to, Rupert Murdoch did approve the money in a move that shocked the industry because there was this untested action star here. And his prior screen efforts included the dismal Blake Edwards comedy called Blind Date as well as Sunset. They were both critical and commercial failures. So getting this kind of money was shifting the paradigm for everybody else. People started demanding higher salaries than Bruce Willis after that. Now, this amount was used as heavy leverage for Willis's total commitment. Willis was told to clean himself up. He had to exercise several hours a day. He was told he had to avoid all parties. He would have to enter into therapy. He joined Alcoholics Anonymous to try to achieve sobriety. That was something that he was plagued with. He had a lot of help from his then-girlfriend, Demi Moore, who also was a recovering alcoholic. Demi's fitness instructor, Jackson Souza, concentrated on building Bruce Willis's biceps and his upper torso. He shifted his diet toward a lot more healthier options than he had been used to. Willis knew that failure here would absolutely ruin his movie career, so he went all in. He got serious about Die Hard about his health, about his career. He even got serious about his relationship with Demi Moore. He would soon marry her sometime during this pre-production phase. D'Souza was also ordered to reduce Willis's scenes. He happened to be in almost every scene in the script. They needed to accommodate that he would be available on only a limited basis once the taping of Moonlighting commenced. So Willis would only really be available in evenings after he had shot Moonlighting. When Willis arrived on the set after spending most of the day shooting Moonlighting, he had to take a 20-minute nap most days. Whenever he started working, he would sneak in little cat naps between takes. McTiernan determined that this really was not going to work long-term. He had D'Souza add more scenes spotlighting supporting characters, and that would allow Willis to get more rest. They could shoot these supporting character scenes. When Willis got on the set, he could get enough rest to shoot his scenes sometime later. Among these expanded supporting characters, that included the villain, now called Hans Gruber. His surrounding terrorists also became a lot more beefed up. McLean's wife would also get a bigger role, the good-natured cop, Al Powell. They would also add a, a pushy reporter, as well as the limo driver. He would stick around in the building and be used for cutaway scenes. The production designer for Die Hard was Jackson Degovia. He wasn't the first one attached. He actually came in pretty late in the pre-production process. He actually was hired only six weeks until the set production date. Degovia imagined that the building would be like a jungle maze inside, very much influenced by the first thing that popped in his mind of a a man trapped in a a skyscraper, the J.G. Ballard book called High Rise, where a modern building is the setting for tribal warfare. Degovia also had this idea of the 1966 film called The Naked Prey, where the protagonist is pursued through the jungle by natives. If he was going to make the inside of a building a jungle, there's kind of an irony to people turning into savages, despite being surrounded completely by by modern man-made structures instead of being out in nature like in a real jungle. And that would set this completely apart from anything that came before in terms of uh, action movies set in a building. Degovia also further highlighted these jungle themes, McLean and the Terrorists, start to alter between actions to try to determine who's the predator and who's the prey silver came in and wanted to to absolutely emphasize elegance he wanted the film to be much more stylish kind of like a james bond film without the gadgets and silver happened to be a, a devotee of frank lloyd wright's architectural work and he requested that the nakatomi interiors should follow frank lloyd wright's design specifically for the pennsylvania house called falling water now, McTiernan always was a little bit reticent about Stuart's script. He felt that Stewart was a little bit too serious as a person, and that kind of carried over into his screenplay. He wanted Die Hard to be a lot more fun than what he was reading. Stuart's script seemed much more at home. In the morally ambiguous 1970s, that's when the book was written. D'Souza was a much different type. D'Souza seemed to have much more of an 80s vibe to him. He could give it more of an 80s sheen. He would work with Bruce Willis uh, because of his inherent comedic persona. D'Souza also happened to be naturally funny himself, and he also had this ironic eye for action movies because he felt that action movies were something to not get overly serious about, something McTiernan also felt. McTiernan stressed to D'Souza he can make all of the dialogue much more wittier than what was coming across in Stewart's script, So long as D'Souza did not change anything regarding the plot or the character basics or the available sets, he could change the dialogue as he saw fit. So D'Souza also decided he would spark a lot more fun plot points. For instance, having the villains know the FBI terrorist playbook. They would start off as terrorists, even though they were actually trying to commit a heist. So the FBI would be thrown off by the fact that they they thought they were dealing with terrorists and follow this playbook not knowing that they were just there to rob the place. So the FBI would cut off power to the building as part of their uh, ability to deal with terrorists, but they didn't know that turning off the electricity would also open the vault by default. And that's when the bad guys are able to enact their heist. By the time the FBI realized that they had been duped, the robbers would have gotten away completely. Now McTiernan wanted the villains To look cool, that James Bond coolness, that they should dress in fine fashions as compared to their main protagonist, who was going to be sporting this grubby A shirt, this undershirt, the wife beater. The style of dress would be patterned because Bruce Willis had a persona of being a smart alecky working class type guy. McClane was conceived to be the anti Stallone. He was kind of a loser, self made in that regard. He feels fear, he could bleed his heroism would be brought out instead by extraordinary circumstances instead of what was already within him. His vulnerability does end up propelling the attention. It also increases audience identity in his plight because he's just like one of us. And in this way, Die Hard would end up targeting audiences who had basically given up on the action genre after they had grown fatigued, that things were trending toward these overblown sensory assaults, the Schwarzenegger and Stone Alone vehicles that were becoming almost parodies of action movies. McTiernan did consider uh, for the role of Sergeant Al Powell, the, the friend, the friendly face on the outside. He considered initially either Robert Duvall or Gene Hackman, but the casting director, Jackie Birch, she pressed that this would not really work as well to try to ground John McLean. They needed somebody friendlier and much more comfortable for him to talk to. And she thought Reginald Vell Johnson would actually work perfectly for that role. Now, Vell Johnson happened to be broke. He was living in his mom's basement. He was considering quitting acting altogether at that point to pursue a career in advertising, and he got the call to come in and audition. Now, McTiernan did like the idea that the... Al Powell would be like a black cop. He actually suggested Lawrence Fishburne would probably be a good idea instead, but Birch insisted that he look at Vell Johnson before he made any commitments because Vell Johnson exuded this kindness, this instant likability that Lawrence Fishburne, although a great actor, seemed to lack. Wesley Snipes was among the other black actors who auditioned for Al Powell. He came in at the same time as Vell Johnson. Ultimately, Bruce Willis felt he had a better vibe with Fell Johnson. He seemed a much better fit. He agreed with Birch. Willis also made a suggestion for who should play his wife in the film. He suggested casting Bonnie Bedelia instead of some tempting starlet among the women that they were considering, because he felt that Bedelia would embody this this kind of woman of quality that McLean would regret losing. Willis didn't really know Bedelia, but he admired her when he saw her Golden Globe nominated performance for the movie Heart Like Wheel. He wanted to work with her and he thought that she would be perfect and she accepted the role. For Hans Gruber, the main bad guy, casting director Birch again, she remembered a stage actor n- named Alan Rickman. Rickman's audition for the Schwarzenegger action comedy Red Heat was something that she recalled. He wasn't right for that role, but thought he would work as a suave sophisticate in this role. Now, Silver and McTiernan decided that they were gonna see Rickman. They, He happened to be performing at that time in the Broadway production of Dangerous Liaisons and they liked his work. They offered him the role immediately. Rickman initially was not interested. He was not somebody who liked action movies. He didn't understand them. He also did not want to perpetuate the trend toward the British bad guy stereotype that had been going on in Hollywood. He didn't know how to hold a gun. Even he actually had to to practice that quite a bit for his rehearsal. After production began, Rickman actually felt so lost in the role, he didn't know how he was supposed to perform. He flinched every time he had to fire his weapon so they would, they would have to cut away from his face to to kind of get him to do that. He even performed a stunt early on in the film and he got hurt. He felt like he, he was going to get fired. It was just imminent. They, he was just all wrong for the part. But apparently he's his worst critic because the dailies revealed to the producers that Rickman had this unexpected dimension that they felt elevated Hans Gruber above your typical big screen heavy. Now, Alexander Gudnoff, a, a ballet dancer turned actor, he actually was an early hire for this. He was hired to uh, play Gruber's main henchman, Carl. Gudnoff was actually hired when Jeb Stewart was still attached Goodenough liked the script. He was hesitant because there was very little depth to the role, so he decided to work with uh, Joel Silver as well as Jeb Stewart, who was still on at the time, to try to build up the character of Carl. Uh, Goodenough happened to speak very little English and had difficulty with some of the dialogue that he was supposed to be given, so he worked with Stewart specifically to try to reduce Carl's dialogue to what he felt he was comfortable with and he would let his physicality drive his menace instead and anything expository that he felt uncomfortable with they decided to write in a brother for Carl to give some of Carl's dialogue to so that is why Carl has a brother as among the the terrorist heisters in the film now de Souza after his first revision of Stewart's script he blew the script up to an un kind of an unwieldy 145 pages which would have made the film like including all of the action sequences run two and a half to three hours. So McTiernan ordered a complete overhaul. He wanted everything tightened up to only really what needed to be in there either to build character or also facilitate the plot. But there wasn't enough time to get a completed script in. So the shoot began after only 35 pages of D'Souza's new script had already been completed and they were incorporating daily changes as new ideas emerged, for instance, in Stewart's original script, the ter- a terrorist named Theo pretends to be a hostage. McLean happens to be unaware that Theo is one of the uh, the terrorists, and that creates a certain tension for the audience. But D'Souza actually felt that Hans Gruber, assuming the hostage identity, would work a lot better than Theo. Because the best action movie villains actually can match the hero in Cunning, and the audiences would feel satisfied when those villains are beaten. So after D'Souza discovered that Alan Rickman could actually do a California accent, he convinced McTiernan and Silver that they should add this plot twist for Gruber to be the one who fools McClane with his accent because gruber was only known as a voice on mclean's walkie-talkie he didn't know what he actually looked like and he would use this accent this american accent to pretend to be one of the hostages and he would get mclean's gun and that would be very tense for the audience who already knew hans gruber was performing a ruse here overnight de decided to script this new scene where gruber picks a name from the company directory near the elevator and pretends to be one of the employees Joel Silver wanted Takagi's assassination to be very graphic. He, in fact, he wanted his his brains blowing out the back of his head during his assassination. And he specifically wanted this because he thought that the MPAA would target this moment as too much to keep an R rating. And if they removed it, they probably wouldn't quibble about all of the other violence when that particular moment was removed. During the editing phase, D'Souza also continued to add lines as they were editing, mostly done in ADR off-camera. For the cinematographer, McTiernan hired Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont was somebody whose work McTiernan greatly admired, from Paul Verhoeven's Dutch films, specifically. And McTiernan wanted de Bont to employ this very kind of documentary style that would use stationary camera work, on occasion, and they would also complement this with handheld close-ups to try to draw viewers into the action by being among the hostages there to feel the tension as if they were there on the floor. DeBont had a preference to keep dark environments naturally dark. He would incorporate more lens flares, something that uh, was not common at the time but would become very commonplace henceforth after Die Hard. DeBont and McTiernan, did have a very contentious shoot they were always at odds on the set to the point where everybody else was kind of uncomfortable uh, primarily this was because mctiernan pressed for multiple takes from different distances his working style was to have a lot of footage available so that he could edit what he felt would be the best footage later the bot despised this he greatly felt that they should have an idea in mind keep the shoot tight not have to continue to do things over and over because they had it all planned out McTiernan was not somebody who did this and despite all of their legendary spats DeBont and McTiernan did have to make amends because they actually drove together to and from the set every day to prepare their upcoming scene so even though they had a contentious relationship they had to put everything aside as professionals Now, Willis, Bruce Willis did have some initial difficulty finding the right rhythm for John McClane. He initially played his role straight. He thought that the film should be serious, but Joel Silver decided to egg him on, to be, he encouraged him to ad lib as much as he liked. They could edit out things that didn't work. He felt that Willis was a funny guy. He should employ a lot of his trademark humor, things that made him very likable. Eventually, Willis did figure out the right balance, and he improvised many of the film's most enduring lines. Now, Willis also initially caused some problems. He was continuously moving to places he wasn't supposed to when he was doing his performance. They found out that he was actually deliberately doing this because he wanted to avoid being captured on camera showing his thinning hair. He knew which side was his best, but the filmmakers assured Willis... He didn't need to worry about this. It was their job to make him look good. They were not going to accentuate anything that made him feel uncomfortable. And th- and so then he could perform as he might without having to worry. Now, the lead up to Die Hard's eventual release during the marketing phase, it was not good for Willis. He was not a very good marketable asset for them at the time. The ratings for Moonlighting were descending now in its fourth season. The HBO mockumentary, The Return of Bruno, that had met with a lot of lackluster reviews... Willis's Blake Edwards comedy called Sunset which had just been released was a major bust. Willis also had that aforementioned public perception of being that party animal that arrogant guy. That proved to be a negative especially during the early marketing phases. Audiences, they had grown jaded by Willis's bad boy persona. They began booing when they saw him or or laughing at the trailer that was playing around the country whenever they saw Bruce Willis appear. They thought it was ludicrous that he would be an action star. Sensing unintended backlash, initial advertisements for Die Hard downplayed Willis's involvement altogether. They just didn't even put him on the poster. The studio marketers, you know, they were very apprehensive about this. They also suggested that maybe they should reduce a lot of the humor that was being put into this film because they thought maybe the jokey tone was going to erase all of the film's tension and people just would not find it exciting at all. However, early test results of the workprint reveal that audiences love Die Hard. And Willis's performance, among the things they loved first and foremost, this seemed like it might actually be a superstar turn, a, a breakthrough vehicle in the making for Bruce Willis. But they needed to generate some good buzz so that people knew that this was a good film. So they decided to release Die Hard in a very limited run. On July 15th, 1988, it was released only into 21 theaters across 20 cities in the United States. But... After they generated that good buzz, the following week, it ballooned to 1,200 theaters and then continued escalating after that. Die Hard ended up making $88 million in the U.S. and over $50 million internationally on a budget of $28 million. So it was a hit, not a huge blockbuster hit, but it was definitely a hit. But it really took off once it hit video rentals as well as cable showings. In 1989, it became the most sought-after rental of that year, and its reputation only grew from there. Eventually, it would become the template for almost any action blockbuster, especially throughout the early to mid-1990s. Die Hard was a star-making movie in the end for Bruce Willis. It's a terrific action flick. It sets a standard for high-concept, high-octane action blockbusters. The following decade, everything was Die Hard in A, but nothing really could match it. None of its imitators and even the Die Hard sequels could not match up to how good Die Hard happens to be, and the joys of Die Hard really lie in the well-developed setup, really good characterizations, really great character actors that were put into this film, the casting is terrific, great action scenes that really propel the plot, and it's also one of the few films where the wise-cracking heroes' one-liners are actually really funny. Die Hard, I, you know, it's not really a thinking man's thriller, even though it's, it's a very smart movie, but it is a case where the formula is done right for popcorn movie fare. This really is a cut above a lot of what was going on in action movies at the time. Lots of action, incredible stunts, very pithy lines, very memorable in that regard. Very good performances all around to anchor it. John McTiernan would yet again, setting the table for over two hours of action movie lovers bliss. Things are blowing up, but we actually do care about what happens when the, when things are blowing up. They're, They're not just eye candy. They're really part of the plot, and we feel the excitement along with the characters. Now, many may have initially questioned the casting of comedic actor Bruce Willis as the action hero. Even somebody like me, who at the time thought this was kind of ridiculous, I was won over by Die Hard. Willis proved me and everybody else All of the other naysayers wrong by successfully establishing that there is nothing remarkable about McClane at all. He's just this normal New York City cop. He's out of his element in this new environment, pretty much unsettled about everything in his life. Normal problems, normal feelings that we can all relate to. He's not Rambo. He's not John Wayne. He even rejects the notion of being John Wayne when he's presented with a poignant question by Hans himself during this film. Although Beverly Hills Cop would come before with a similar premise of a street-smart, wise-cracking, blue-collar cop transplanted to California, it was really Die Hard that did it with a unique style and verve and wit on its own to separate itself as something unique that was going on in the action genre at the time. And it delivered everything you could want and more in an action picture. And that's why I'm giving Die Hard four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I would recommend this to anybody, obviously action movie fans but also if you love thrillers and comedies it delivers on those levels as well you know you don't even have to be a Bruce Willis fan if you're turned off to Bruce Willis if you're turned off to action movies this still has an appeal it just works and works well so if you've been somebody who's staved off over decades saying I don't like Bruce Willis I don't like action movies give Die Hard a try you'll probably be very entertained by it I would recommend it to pretty much anybody Four stars out of four is what I give Die Hard. Now, obviously, the Die Hard films would continue after this, starting in 1990 with Die Hard 2. But because I do a films of the 1990s podcast, I will save the sequels for that podcast at a later date. I'm not going to do it right away. So if you want to hear my takes on all of the sequels for Die Hard, you want to subscribe to the 90s and beyond, and you'll eventually hear that when I get around to it. As I mentioned, this is the first of a three-part series for this, and I already mentioned the film I'm going to be doing next, right here at the end of this review. Beverly Hills Cop, another cop who gets transplanted to the Los Angeles area. He's a fish out of water, just like John McClane. And he's wisecracking just the same. So, very much in keeping with Die Hard, although not quite as heavy on spectacular action, but it's still a very funny, a very action-packed film on its own. Starring Eddie Murphy, one of the biggest hits of the 1980s. Beverly Cop on the next episodes. I hope you're looking forward to that. If you have your own thoughts on Die Hard that you want to impart something I haven't talked about here, or if you just want to echo something that I've said, then- something that occurs to you you can write to me you can find my contact information at my website that's at quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net you'll find my email my links to my twitter feed my facebook page i I guess i have to add my threads account as well and my instagram of course all of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me and let me know what you think of the show hopefully you enjoy it quipster.net until next time thank you everyone for listening and joining me on around the world in 80s movies.